Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's Hinge Points. I'm Denny Bessner, here as always with Matt Chrisman. This week, we're going to talk about one of the most important turning points in not only American, but world history, and that is essentially the presidency of Harry S. Truman um, took us, uh, begins with the death of FDR in 1945 and takes us through uh, the early 1950s and really gets the Cold War going. So this is really a crucial moment for several reasons. Now, the United States, in a lot of ways, is imperial from the very beginning. You can think of Western expansion as just uh, as the first instance of, of American imperialism, the expansion to the West Coast. You get the War of 1898 and you get the American seizure of colonies in the Philippines and Puerto Rico and elsewhere in the world, but it's only really after World War II that the American empire takes the form with which we are familiar, a form that's truly global in scope. And in a real way, the American empire of the World War II and post-World War II period is the first truly global empire in world history. Neither the Romans, nor the Ottomans, nor even the British were truly global in scale like the American empire with its hundreds of military bases, its enormous defense budget, and everything that makes it so great uh, to be an American today. But what we're going to focus on is the particular moment of this transition point in, in the 1940s and 1950s when Truman set the United States on this course. And we're going to ask if whether something could have been different, whether the American empire could have not have been or could have taken a different form. And I think the uh, most intriguing uh, element of this, the reason that it is a, a, a hinge point as opposed to a, something that's overly determined like like many – like the flow of history often seems to be, uh, is that you had in the White House until the crucial moment uh, as the war was ending, uh, similarly as you had as the Civil War was ending, a, a United States president who had presided over an entire epoch of America changing uh, from one sort of state into another, gaining uh, uh, functions and abilities and, and structures and, and, and literally like a self-awareness that it didn't have beforehand. And, and FDR presided over this entire process while negotiating this power alliance between the traditional finance capital of the East Coast, America's manufacturing capital, the working class as represented in uh, labor unions and then their uh, activism within the Democratic Party, but also, you know, the Communist Party and and all sorts of radical formations within the United States at that time. All of them allied in this moment of crisis in a popular front against fascism and in collaboration with this capitalist government. And then you had the the mass of Americans who, by the end of the war, had identified uh, Franklin Roosevelt with this entire process uh, and who had a, a, a deep filial relationship with uh, he, even though he was ailing. Uh, in 1944 and was seeking an unprecedented fourth term, there was essentially no internal resistance to him uh, running again at that point because of his deep identification with the war effort, but also the effort to build a state that could win the war. And in so doing, the person of Roosevelt, we see in his governance, in the way he responded to Stalin and, and, and Churchill in, in negotiating uh, the course of the war, but also the way that he related to the incipient anti-colonial movements in the rest of the world and in, and, and in the anti-American national movements within Latin America, where, where the, the Monroe Doctrine had by long time <coughs> had certainly by now, completely 
run it, wore out its welcome. And you see this willingness to imagine the post-war world as a continuation of the collaboration that had won the war, a, a collaboration between the United States and the Soviet Union and the peoples of the colonialized world seeking national self-determination instead of what we got, which is capital-directed war on behalf of a new American imperial machine. And I think it's really important here to highlight the person of Roosevelt. And this is crucial not only for explaining this particular moment in American history, but it's also crucial for asking the larger question of how much agency do particular historical actors have in a particular moment, or does structure define everything? Was a Cold War inevitable, or was um, the death of FDR the really crucial thing that allowed the Cold War to happen? And this is really crucial because I think as Marxists, both Matt and I tend to the side of structure structure, tend to the side of large-scale historical change, ultimately rooted in the means of production, who controls them, how and why, and how transformations in capitalism engender macro shifts in uh, American history and, and in global history. But I do think, at least for me, and I'd like to hear what you think about this, this is one of the instances where the death of Roosevelt um, actually pushes things in, in, a, in a particular direction for a variety of reasons. So as you said, Roosevelt is really crucial because he essentially in the 1930s and through the New Deal creates the capacity for the modern American state. Um, Famously, the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, uh, the Federal Communications uh, Commission, the uh, FCC, and a bunch of other of these regulatory agencies are created um, by Roosevelt, the so-called alphabet soup agencies, the WPA, the CCC, all of these things. And this really does, for the first time in American history, begin building a, a, a state capacity. And this is crucial to our story because it's Truman, who in the late 1940s undertakes what some historians, and I think this is a good way of looking at it, refer to as the second New Deal, the sort of second structure of alphabet soup agencies, the NSC, the National Security Council, the NSA, the National Security Agency, the CIA, uh, the DOD, all of these alphabet soup agencies are essentially the continuations of the New Deal, but to manage instead of an emergent American state. It's to manage a global order, a global imperial order. So FDR is really crucial for, I think, laying the groundwork for the state. But he's also crucial because as a person, he has a very particular relationship with people like Joseph Stalin and Winston Churchill, and particularly his relationship with Stalin, I believe, was close enough that you would have been able to actually avoid the Cold War that uh, quickly emerged. And it's because Truman— didn't have that not only didn't have that relationship that Roosevelt had with Stalin, but was I think insecure, was I think was trying to assert American might, that you, you get the Cold War in the form that it took. Absolutely. I mean when when it was when it was FDR, Stalin, and Churchill in a room, uh the odd man out was always Churchill. And he knew it. My favorite story about that is is they're sitting around deciding what to do with post-war Germany, and Stalin makes the absolutely reasonable uh, suggestion that they should have gone with, that they need to execute the top 50,000 members of the German military officer class. And Churchill just goes red in the face at the very prospect of executing people who are fighting for their country. And FDR says, well, how about 40,000? And it gets Churchill so mad he almost leaves the room. Like, Churchill... Yeah, he was the guy defending this like rump 
delusional empire that was literally at this point already dead and didn't know it. Of course, it was being represented by this pathetic Martinet. But whereas Stalin stood for a Soviet experiment that had like seen the limits of its abilities and, and is like confronting them and certainly now knows like what it takes to survive. And a guy in Roosevelt who I think genuinely did believe that he was managing a transition away from capitalism. I do believe he thought he was doing that. I think he thought that in the next couple of generations there was going to be a transition. I think that's fair. Yes. And of course, you know, for an orthodox uh, communist, you say, well, fuck that. That's fantasy revisionism. But he's the last American president to think that. That needs to be remembered. Like, this is the end of that idea that a president could operate on the assumption that he is part of a project that abolishes capitalism. That's over with with the death of FDR. And as materialists, though, we would have to stress, like, his particular desires are beside the fact except for the fact that he is representing a massive coalition and his personal views are therefore meaningful because he can marshal that part of his coalition the same way he did to defeat uh, John Nance Garner at the 1940 nomination. John Nance Garner, Cactus Jack Garner from Texas, the Democratic Speaker of the House, had been FDR's running mate in 1932. Uh, and he represented the Southern, more reactionary uh, wing of the party. Uh, and he dutifully served for eight years as vice president, hated every minute of it, famously described the job as not worth a bucket of warm spit uh, or piss, depending on uh, your preference, and did this with the assumption that after FDR had served his two terms, which everyone understood since Washington is how many terms you serve, that he would get the nomination. And FDR challenged him at the convention. And even with the entire South behind Garner, the business interest behind Garner and precedent behind Garner, FDR got that nomination because he had this support. Now, by 1944, the focus had become so much on winning the war that domestic politics had sort of atrophied, which is one of the reasons why when the uh, Senate Democrats insist on replacing the populist uh, Puritan gentleman, Henry Wallace, with Truman on the ticket, that Truman was un unable to uh, resist them. But from a position of still being the president, it's easy to imagine him pushing forward with his nascent plans to press the Europeans to decolonize as soon as possible and to provide the sort of Marshall Plan aid that Europe got for the entire world. And, of course, that would have caused a massive response from capital, but it would have been in a context where that project is seated at the height of executive power, which is considerable at this point. Hypothetically, this is when the leader of the free world becomes a guy, and this could be the guy. But FDR dies, and honestly, you can't really get rid of FDR dying because by 1945, he was in absolutely horrible shape. I believe they, they, his last physical before he went to Hot Springs to recover uh, and died, his over-reliant blood pressure was like like 400 over 250 or something like that. The kind of thing that like a modern doctor would have said, okay, let's do something about this. So he was done. So the real what if is if there had been a different array of forces at the convention to keep Wallace on the ticket, Henry Wallace, who is the next step from FDR in the terms of a patrician from the bowels of American capitalism who had been culturally turned towards socialism that would have been wallace but instead he was replaced by the machine hack harry truman who's owed his entire political allegiance and his entire political identity to the democratic party stripped of any ideological concerns whatsoever 
And I think in a real way, it's useful to think of of Harry Truman as kind of a Joe Biden-esque figure, or rather Joe Biden as a Harry Truman-esque figure, and that he's a politician of an earlier age. If you think of the people that kind of define the presidents of the early Cold War, you have Eisenhower, who's a military guy, you have Kennedy, who's probably the first meritocrat, and then you have Johnson, who's probably the last genuinely machine politician that we've had run the United States until Joe Biden. And so you have these different uh, formations forming different things. And what uh, happens is that over the course of the middle to late 1940s, Truman, who genuinely feels himself, uh, I think at least, outstripped when he's dealing with someone like Molotov, the Soviet foreign minister, or when he's trying to deal with Stalin. Uh, He makes a series of insecure decisions that eventually result in the uh, World War II alliance, the United Nations, as it was called at the time, and that's why the institution is named the United Nations, uh, essentially falling apart relatively quickly. So that by 1947, um, Essentially, the Cold War breaks out. The, the, the division of Germany is solidified. Uh, the Western allies of France, the United Kingdom, and uh, the, the United States um, solidify into their own zone against the Soviet zone. Um, Stalin basically makes it clear in a June 1946 speech that he doesn't think capitalism and communism are able to live together. Uh, And then you have strategic documents like George Kennan's famous long telegram arguing essentially in what I think is one of the greatest acts of projection in American history that the Soviet Union was dedicated to world domination uh, and therefore the United States needed to dominate the core areas of the world. And Truman essentially abides by the opinions of the generals, abides by people in the State Department like Kennan, and he launches the Cold War. He he really institutionalizes a world system, a, a Manichaean world system, in which the United States and its allies and fellow travelers are considered to be the free world, and the Soviet Union and its allies and fellow travelers are considered to be what was called at the time the slave world. And, and then he does things like get involved in Korea, which gives the money to make the Cold War uh, into a real thing, setting the stage, I think without exaggeration, for the entire four decade-plus history of the Cold War. And so the great question is, what if it wasn't Henry, uh, what if it wasn't Harry Truman, but what if it was Henry Wallace who was vice president? And this is a real question because immediately um, after he uh, is no longer vice president, uh, Wallace becomes commerce secretary, I believe, uh, under uh, FDR. Uh, He actually becomes uh, the editor of the New Republic, and he's really kind of a one-world guy. Uh, He he is skeptical of communism, and I think it's important not to overstate the you know, the, his ideological affinity, but I don't think he was dedicated to the type of Manichaean struggle that would have uh, that broke out in the Cold War. Well, more importantly than his personal uh, views on communism, and I do believe that he had that same, uh, you know, Yankee disdain for communism that Upton Sinclair had, an, an, another sort of Puritan liberal. Uh, but what mattered is, is that his staff and supporters were all fucking communists. Like, not only were they sympathizers and fellow travelers many of them were active members of the communist party this is the thing that uh, later reactionaries would point to as evidence of the need for a red scare but of course what they're really pointing to is is their opponents in a battle for control of the democratic party and the direction of the american state after world war ii and the red scare is what we got because they won and they won in large part because the guy in the room was not a fellow traveler a dupe a useful idiot for the communist cause it was this machine hack from Missouri, who was doing what his party bosses wanted, which was 
what their bosses wanted, American capital, which was war footing for the economy forever, which meant uh, a conflict with the Soviets. It meant imposing terms on every country we could and extracting cheap resources to feed a new industrial economy that would roar with profits and that would be stabilized by a modest redistribution downward, but that was premised on imperial super profits. Why don't you talk quickly about Wallace and who he was? Because I think his transformation from basically Republican populist to Democratic Party elite says something about the course of political history over the course of the first half of the 20th century. So there's two ways that you come to the left broadly. There is the experience of labor, but then there is what is much more common in the American tradition because of America's exceptional relationship to uh, capital formation. I mean, America is literally exceptional to the other developed nations because it was able to alleviate its social uh, conflicts through this free real estate giveaway that no other European state, even in imperialism, could really uh, match. And that did give it different institutions and different parties and stuff like that. But you still have, even with that, thanks to the Depression, by the 30s, a very militant, organized, working class left movement, including people who were self-identified communists at every level of the labor movement. The Congress of Industrial Organizations breaks away from the American Federation of Labor to pursue a more radical conflict with capitalism in the 30s and is chock-a-block with very dedicated, very intelligent communist operatives who are coming out of the labor movement. But the other way, the way more that is common in this middle-class country we have is through affect and through personal morality. And that means that the archetypal progressive and liberal who emerges from the middle class, is horrified by capital's excesses and tries to ameliorate them technocratically through technocracy of government, which is what the progressive movement was, and then through technocracy of administration. Uh, Henry Wallace was an agricultural expert, and he helped codify the first agricultural subsidy program in America to prevent the sort of mass farm uh, ruination that happened during the Dust Bowl. And that tradition that better government tradition in the middle of the country was Republican. It was a residue of that old abolitionist Republican Party. The Democratic Party in those parts of the country represented uh, drunk Irish in the cities and Jim Crow Klansmen in the South. It was not a party of, of, of advancement. It was not a progressive party. The Republican Party, the party of Lincoln, was. And that's where you saw that that energy flowed. This is the same sort of current that produces later radicals like George McGovern. But at that point, it's in flux between the Republican and Democratic parties. But then it is the New Deal and the Democratic Party putting itself to the mission of reforming capitalism radically that draws all of these erstwhile Republicans to it. Like Fiorello LaGuardia, the the fusion Republican mayor of New York, uh, endorses and, and supports FDR all through the New Deal. So Wallace is being pulled by this moral repugnance for capitalism that is failing and a technocratic desire to find a cure. And that technocratic cure in the 1910s was, you know, civil service reform and regulation and maybe a graduated income tax. But by the 30s, by the war era, the insufficiency of that is pretty clear. And so now the technocratic, earnest, liberal prescription for the American capitalism is for it to be euthanized and for it to be replaced by scientific socialism. And that is the current behind like elite adherence to the Communist Party and to the, this project that will now fight for control with the machine itself over the course of Truman's presidency. And so if we imagine that Wallace is in there when FDR dies and that he's the presidency, this raises, again, a lot of really 
interesting counterfactual questions because there are a lot of different interests operating at the time. On on one hand, there's a genuine anti-communism within the the elite of the American state and the business class uh, in the military, you know, a general skepticism of the Soviet Union. The romance of American communism did genuinely begin to attenuate amongst the elite American liberals after the Moscow trials of the 1930s and a particular turns uh, Stalin took. So there is this, this big anti-communist um, strand of thinking an interest group that isn't going to go away. Um, so I think it's interesting to think about Wallace because I think it, it's critical to think of what elements of the Cold War would have been different um, in the light of this overdetermination of anti-communism and, you know, psychopathic American desire, which emerges from the, the Puritan heart of the country to really dominate the world, which is evident in American history from John Winthrop's 1630 City, uh, City Upon a Hill speech all the way forward, in my opinion. There's a universalizing impulse to the American project that goes from sea to shining sea and eventually over the globe and eventually, as we're seeing uh, with our current oligarchs like like Bezos and Musk, who is essentially uh, uh, an American to the moon, uh, precisely. So there is that element there. But what I do think would have been um, would have been different under Wallace is I think whatever form that emergent national security state took, it wouldn't have been the peculiar form that it wound up taking, which is this kind of this public-private partnership. And that's crucial because by creating, for example, by having the American research apparatus exist primarily in think tanks or at Ivy League universities, uh, which is what Truman did and and was an effort that Truman and Eisenhower in particular uh, promoted because in some real way they were skeptical, at least in some regard, about large state power, I don't think you would have necessarily gotten that under Wallace. And that's crucial because when an institution like, let's say, the Rand Corporation, which is the first think tank in modern American history, is outside the official structures of the American state, it's very difficult to regulate and it's very difficult to figure out what's going on. And it's not a surprise, for example, that Daniel Ellsberg had to steal the Pentagon Papers from uh, the Rand Corporation, which is where he was an employee. So I think under Wallace, there would have been a general skepticism of those private, you know, what they called at the time, private interests that just really wasn't there under Truman, and that Truman, in a genuine way, allowed himself to be pushed around by what might be considered the elite conservative reaction, people like Vannevar Bush, you know, people who are pushing uh, the American state in a particular way where it's not really a state, but an amalgamation of public and private institutions that exist in different places of the country and that are subject to different forms of authority. I think the crucial thing with Truman is, is that when these guys are pushing this on him, they're pushing against an open door because he has no prior commitments to the project. He has no personal psychic investment. He has not uh, uh, sublanted his ego to a project. Like FDR, like all American presidents, is a fucking ego monster. It was, it was a demon. It was it was trying to like turn himself into a god. Horrifying. But his idea of what that meant was socialism. Like he was going, he is, he is imagining himself as like a, a founding father of a new a rationalized, humane human order. So he was invested in that. And Wallace, consumed by the exact same idea, would have also pursued that same uh, dream. And the full-blown commies around him would have certainly helped. Truman had none of that. He was a failed haberdasher who got, became a judge because he got a favor from the Pendergrass machine in Kansas City. And then they pushed him up through the ranks. Politics was, as Wax Weber said, a vocation for him. 
It was not in a place for him to have feelings or, or believe anything. He had, I'm sure, beliefs, and he seems to have like gotten very invested in the idea of you know uh creating universal health care and he did have a genuine antipathy toward like the fat cats who ran the country but he had no connection to a movement he had no connection to a program and so when he comes under pressure from these institutions and their representatives of them there is no pushback he is going to take the path of least resistance and since there's no resistance within him it's always going to flow towards what capital wants and i think one of the fundamental branchings in american history is the fact that wallace was already on record before the 44 election on opposing the private copywriting of publicly discovered scientific research and this process that defines the cold war a hugely intensive state investment in, in a military-based keynesianism producing all of these amazing technological uh, advancements that are all subsequently privatized, that are all subsequently copyrighted and turned into private property, even though they were all produced publicly. And that process begins under Truman. And, and the, this copyright regime emerges where, because at the end of the day, capital doesn't want the state to have that much access to that much like actual technological power, potential uh, you know leverage, it has to be privatized. It has to be pulled towards profit and that magnet pulled it all it sucked it up and now we live in a world a post-democratic order where there's so much technology in private hands that it's almost impossible to imagine a political response to capital because our uh so much of our world is not conducted politically it's conducted technologically and the all of that technology is privately held and that is a fundamental distinction between wallace and truman and if you imagine uh, Wallace pursuing that as a, as a uh, public policy, he's not going to get a lot of pushback from people. There's going to be the same thing that happened under FDR, which is a capital-led propaganda effort against the New Deal and against whatever this would have been. And it would have had adherence, particularly among the precarious petty bourgeois who are always there to fight on behalf of capital at its most ag- agitated. But you would not have any kind of like popular groundswell on behalf of private copyright. And if that happens... I do think the question we have to answer now is we are imagining a world where capital is put to a existential point. Like this is, like we said, a hinge point and capital recognized it as such. The reason humanity lost is because we had not yet achieved the ability to recognize it as such. Maybe FDR could have recognized it as such, but his goddamn brain exploded. We can recognize it as this moment when, when capital went on the offensive. And you have to imagine that if a guy like Wallace was able to be a conduit for a unification of this movement from the grassroots of factory workers who supported these labor unions within the uh, cadres of the CIO and the Communist Party, all the forces of the popular front that were there ideologically, that were motivated by this project of human liberation of the working class of the world, if they had all flocked to this banner of Wallace's, there would have to be some reckoning. I 
think you really hit the nail on the head. And I think to understand why, we've got to go a little bit back to the 1930s. So the 1930s is, is in my opinion, probably the most important decade in the, in the 20th century because it's where a lot of the currents that we're still dealing with, a lot, a lot, even a lot of the political language, you know, everyone's talking about fascism today and totalitarianism and authoritarianism to a large degree, to a not insignificant degree. These are all products of the 1930s. And so the 1930s is a very complicated decade because on one hand, like Matt was saying, you have for the, for the again, the first time in American history, a genuine mass mobilization of different interest groups, different classes, different racial groupings, different ethnicities together under uh, under the banner of the New Deal. You get the mobilization, the effective mobilization of large-scale forces, mass politics. Uh, and in fact, we still today talk the language of mass politics, even though in my opinion, we, we actually, as, as masses and as individuals, don't af- actually have much say. And one of the reasons that we don't have much say is because of the transformations that occurred in the 1940s. So the 1930s are this are this great moment of mass mobilization organized under the banner of the New Deal and to some degree within the Democratic Party itself and initiates this very uh, apocal shift in the Democratic Party uh, and slowly away from the Dixiecrats who eventually leave in the 60s. Um, but that's a story for another day. But in response to this mass mobilization, you have a critique of mass politics amongst the elite. Um, and the elite is scared of mass politics for a number of reasons. One, it, it, of course, threatens their own prerogative. But two, they often read the experience of American mass mobilization in light of what was going on in Europe. What's going on in Europe? You have the rise of fascism uh, in Italy and in uh, Nazi Germany, of course. And, you know, these are read as uh, these mass movements that have an enormous impact on a negative impact uh, on on uh, world history and even the Soviet Union uh, probably incorrectly is understood as as a society at least at that point that is partially run by masses so you have an elite counter reaction to the mass mobilizations of the 1930s and you could i think usefully see in the late 1940s Truman as um, representative maybe not personally but the people around him and the people who are supporting him are representative of that that anti-mass politics impulse, whereas Wallace is very much someone in favor of, of those mass political formations, as Matt was talking about. So it's really in the 1940s and through that creation of the American state, then what it means to be a Democrat, not, you know, Democratic Party, but a literal Democrat, in the United States undergoes a transformation. So if you think about where in the 1930s, uh, to be a Democrat was to be someone who believed in social democracy, economic democracy, cultural democracy, and political democracy. By the 1940s and early 1950s, democracy gets defined down to political democracy and specifically the act of voting. And I think you need to understand that defining down of democracy to the act of voting, putting that in dialogue with the public-private partnership that begins to define the American state as the moment where the United States became, in a genuine sense, an anti-democracy, a society organized around limiting the masses' impact on politics and the individual individual citizens impact on politics. And I think the reason that you can point to this as a crucial hinge point and you can imagine alternatives is that with the death of FDR and the ascension of Truman, you do not see this grassroots movement that we've described just turn up give up the fight. There is in the late 40s a significant battle on behalf of this working class movement to assert 
themselves in the political domain to apply pressure and to redefine politics. And they are, over the course of the late 40s, defeated by, by the political system and by the people, quote-unquote, in, in terms of the people who like, showed up for the 1946 uh, midterms, for example. Uh, but of course, you know, that's always going to be slanted towards the most prosperous end of the, the demographic, the people who are least uh, materially committed to socialism. But there is an actual effort. But because it cannot be harnessed from the White House, because it cannot be directed from the heights of the state apparatus, it fizzles. So throughout World War II, the majority of unions in the country observed a no-strike pledge because they were all on board with the New Deal, whether you were a business unionist, AFL type, or a secret communist in the CIO, you believed it was in the greater good to bottled up uh, internal dissension to help win the war, help beat the communists, or help beat the Nazis, help save the Soviet Union. It was worth putting off all labor conflicts. And of course, there were a few violations of that, mostly about race and integration of uh, munitions factories, like in Detroit and Baltimore. But after the war, the lid of the kettle explodes, and there is a massive, unprecedented to this day, wave of strikes, militant confrontations uh, with capital throughout the country in the late 40s. And this strike wave is eventually muffled and, and suppressed by the failure for any other element of the social order to uh, connect to the struggle. And this is why, if you imagine that Henry Wallace is president with a huge eruption of strikes after the war, it's much easier to imagine a situation where the leverage of the state going in on behalf of the strikers changes the dynamic. But as it were, as it was, Truman mostly let these strikes die on their own. There was an attempt to nationalize the U.S. steel industry later in the early 50s during the Korean War, which the Supreme Court struck down and which everyone just accepted. They accepted the rule of that bourgeois institution. But without that connection to the state structure and the political system, the strike wave uh, was broken. And that raises really interesting questions about whether you have the turn to consumption that begins to define American capitalism in the late 1940s and early 1950s if Wallace is there and he supports the strikers. Because like you said, Truman allows these strikes to die off. Um, but I think he also, the, the, the gambit of the American ruling class and capital, particularly when the United States controls, what, 50% of world production after Europe commits suicide, is that they're going to replace the frontier, you know, that masculinist frontier with American <laughs> consumption. And uh, America is literally going to extract and consume the world. So I'm curious, what do you think? Because it's an open question. If Wallace is, is in there, do we have a different turn in the consumptive politics of the U.S.? So when uh, we reached the final crisis of that post-war consumptive arrangement in the 70s, the, the liberal that we had at that point in charge, uh, Jimmy Carter, who had gone through the continuation of the process that began with the death of Roosevelt is at this point a totally moralistic liberal, completely unmoored to any class concepts whatsoever, who decides that uh, he's going to be straight with the American people, tell them they can't consume as much as they did, and that they should find meaning elsewhere, even though he is giving them no hope of finding any meaning in the actual uh, conditions of their labor, which is like their defining human, human condition. Uh, and of course, Given the option of uh, Roosevelt, or I'm sorry, uh, the option of uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, fan, uh, Hollywood bullshit about uh, a, an, an endless consumer utopia based on t cutting taxes, they chose door number two. Of course they did, but I don't think that's the same situation that you see in 1945, 
where the American public at that point had experienced nothing but for the last two generations, uh, privation, misery, and trauma. And you had a, uh, you had millions of American men coming home from a, a traumatic experience that no one you can think of, if you're listening to this, probably can compare to. Something that none of us growing up have ever had anything like the kind of trauma of, of experiencing World War II at, at, at the end of a god, just beyond comprehension. And they were coming home having believed they won something. But what that thing was was up for grabs. They were not coming home demanding it be a quarter acre in the suburbs and a TV uh, dinner and uh, Ed Sullivan show. They were not clamoring for that. That's what they got because the people who were in a position to make these grander decisions and set these agendas that people can then respond to were all opposed to anything other than that, who were fixated on creating this extraction machine that would be a just a giant drill into the heart of the world sucking everything else out of it turning it into this military machine to dominate the space and then this place for people to just mindlessly consume and just very quickly it's not for nothing that you know the anthropocene uh, which is a you know a, a concept that i might have some issues with but uh, generally uh, the starting date is pointed to the early 1950s when basically human caused climate change begins to genuinely shape all of the world because this is where capitalism makes a deal with not just america's but every government on earth that you will not have control over production as people, as workers. You will have the ability to consume. Khrushchev is often castigated for his churn to the consumer economy after World War II, but he had no choice. The choice had been for Stalin to continue the war. And as soon as Stalin decides that he is going to sign this armistice, the way that the American working class signed an armistice at the exact same time with uh, capital in the United States, uh, then you have to fight them on the terrain of consumption because now you're in an arms race you will be taken over unless you build this machine of death which is dead labor that cannot be recuperated in the community that does not give social value you are committed to this and that means that you are committed to extracting surplus labor from the workers which is alienated from them and that undermines their faith in the system they live in communism and that can only be assuaged with consumer choice the same way we have in the united states but all of that starts in washington and all of that starts with truman picking a side committing the states to that side and then dictating to these millions of americans who had a very wide idea of what this thing they'd won would be a very narrow notion it's going to be consumption pleasure capitalism and if you don't like it you're a fucking communist and we'll fucking kill you you will not have anything and with that option, people chose the most logical, rational thing. If you have Wallace in there and you have this state contest with capital, I think these same traumatized troops coming home are going to experience that question as a live one, not as something dictated to them. Like, oh, we actually get to choose what we fought for, what this was worth. And I think they would choose... If they had a state reinforcing it and giving them a thing to do to support it at every moment instead of just a state happy to let capitalism just define happiness through mass culture without any intervention, they would choose to have more control over their lives. 
And I think that's absolutely true, especially when you consider that World War II was a paradigmatic mass experience. That when you're, you know, fighting in the Ardennes forest or you're uh, traipsing through Western Germany or, you know, you land on D-Day or you're in uh, Southern Italy, you're relying on the person next to you to an incredible degree where that person becomes more than your brother. They become, you know, a literal extension of yourself. So one of the great puzzles of modern history is how that incredible mass experience wound up producing the equally incredible American individualism of the 1950s. If you think, you know, the the paradigmatic experience of the 40s for a lot of young men was sitting with with your your brothers in arms and compare that to the paradigmatic experience of the 50s, which is driving on the interstate highway system in your extractivist automobile, it's a totally different uh, world. There was a legitimate anxiety among the political class in the United States in the late 40s about what to do with the veterans. They were considered a scary live wire. Like people were remembering like the fucking uh, the Putney debates, you know, and the levelers. Like you've got these trained soldiers now coming back to America with certain demands for their sacrifice. And there actually were several instances. One of the most prominent, I believe, was in Tennessee of a, like, a local political machine being resisted by returning veterans who were no longer happy to just let you know the machine do the work. They wanted to be in charge of their lives politically. And the local sheriff-led political machine rigs an election, and these local veterans get their fucking guns and go to town square. And they end up forcing a new round of voting and like an, anal- and an overthrow of the local power. The fear that that could be extended not only to politics but to labor relationships was genuinely haunting to the planners after the war and and getting people into quarter acre lots in the suburbs with amenities and a big fucking buick was incredibly important and that's why you see this rolling out of the red carpet to the american working class the white american working class at this point because anything to give people somewhere else to put their focus because if it's relatively easy and intuitive to pursue a political mobilization after the war if it makes sense to you and your friends to keep fighting domestically for something if it feels worth it to do you'll keep doing it but if there's nothing if there's no social signal that you should do that if every social signal tells you that you should actually buy a house and watch tv and forget about everything that happened just forget about all that stuff it's okay, you can. You'll be eating a burger in your, uh, on your grill. You won't be thinking about your friend's fucking guts blown over half of the city of Monte Cassino. You don't have to worry about it. You can, you, can just, you can just vibe out. Don't worry. And so you see this massive explosion in uh, working class, white working class uh, standard of living. But that then, that is what defines the political terrain of America since then. And so by the 70s, you don't have this like, raw live wire population that like is willing to sacrifice for something that matters you have people who have never sacrificed for anything and whose relationship to the state and to the system and to capitalism is one of a a happy well-fed beneficiary so how can they politically mobilize against a rearranging of the uh, political economy they can't it happens behind their back and then they get to choose a fairy tale to tell themselves about what just happened and of course they chose reagan's and then I think, you know, first time as tragedy, then as farce. With t- today, people 
are, are play acting the revolutionary moments of the past with things like January 6th and whatnot. And one of the reasons that I, I'm not worried about this is because they're actually not veterans. And like you said, they are just the beneficiaries of capitalism in a real way and, and wouldn't die for any political uh, project because they don't really believe in any political project. And I think that's been demonstrated. And uh, one thing that's always, you know, struck me about the veterans is that the people who couldn't, you know, uh, amalgamate themselves to the uh, society do things like form the Hells Angels, you know, form motorcycle gangs, adapt this hyper nihilistic politics that prefigures the nihilistic politics that I think have become ever more popular in the last 15 or 20 years. And and just speaking of fear of veterans, you know, the first modern serial killer, the, the famous Walk of Death, was a veteran, you know, and this was... Howard Unruh, uh, I believe a, a soldier of German descent from New Jersey, um, was uh, the first modern serial killer. And people could look up the walk of death. It's a, it's a, you know, a tragic but interesting story that says a lot about what people's anxieties and fear uh, fears were in the late 1940s. Um, but I think we should conclude on another important moment that I also think would have been different under Wallace, and that's the Korean War. So um, I think it's important to underline that the Korean War is really what gives the Cold War the money that it needs. Um, before the Korean War broke out, a man named Paul Nitze uh, oversaw the, the creation of a document called NSC-68, National Security Co- Council Document 68, which effectively called for massive funding of the Cold War uh, that you know frames the battle with the Soviet Union as this uh, existential Manichaean struggle and argues that the United States needs to uh, fight this Cold War. And uh, removes the, the the mechanism for funding that war from democratic consideration. Exactly. So it's really the institutionalization of the Cold War. But importantly, this document actually doesn't go anywhere until the Korean War breaks out in June 1950. Uh, and Truman decides to really go balls to the wall uh, in the Korean War. And between 1950 and 1953, uh, the United States and, you know, leading a, a UN force, a United Nations force, uh, essentially pursues the most barbarous, uh, at least in terms of per capita casualties, war of the 20th century, more barbarous than World War II and more barbarous than Vietnam. There are 3.5 million Korean casualties. And what the Korean War does, you know, famously referred to as the Forgotten War, but what it does, it essentially puts the United States on the Cold War track for good. The Cold War is institutionalized, uh, both in terms of the state formations that we were talking about and also in terms of the security commitments that the United States is going to make. The United States is going to find a, fight a ground war in Asia. That was unimaginable in a real way before World War II. And of course, then it goes uh, into Vietnam uh, and what some historians have called the Cold War's killing fields. Paul Thomas Chamberlain in particular uh, has called Asia the Cold War's killing fields. And I do think if Wallace was in there, I don't think he would have committed troops to Korea. I think that would have been viewed as an imperialist war. And so if Wallace is not in there, then you essentially don't have the institutionalization, the securitized institution institutionalization of the Cold War, the thing that really gets the military-industrial complex going and really makes Americans ready, that they, they're prepared to fight a series of wars after World War II. World War II wasn't the war to end all wars like World War I was supposed to, uh, to be. It was never framed that way because American hegemony always depended on these types of military interventions that were defined in the Korean War. And I think, at least, Matt, I don't know what you think, but I don't think Wallace would have gone into Korea. Absolutely. I mean, for one thing, the Korean War was not 
a uh, feckless invasion uh, by the north of the south as it's depicted. It was a provocation of the U.S. and the South Korean puppet government that we controlled to get the north to invade. Now, Truman wasn't directing this. Truman didn't want this to happen. But the structures that he had created in his signing of all these national security memos, the creation of things like the CIA, uh, meant that the uh, deep state... This is now being created and now is operating independently of any democratic consideration. And that means under his that means without his uh, uh, authorization, because he is at the end of the day, at, at the end of the day, he's only there because he won an election. And so he is going to have a limited ability to influence the decisions of these people. And so they this new national security state makes a effort of pushing back against communism wherever they see it, of, of provoking border areas. And this is a border area where their provocations got what they wanted. And then they got to have their war to set their predicate for their coming Cold War. I don't think Wallace, as we were talking about, creates those things in the first place. And so you don't have that happening. Hell, you probably have a communist Korean peninsula. And of course, that's horrifying to imagine because, my God, then you're imagining all of Korea is terrible North Korea, Juche, slave camp. But what we're really trying to say here is that if that happens, you don't have a Cold War as we understand it. You have a, you have uh, essentially a Kautsky and Bernstein's dream, which is a reform of capitalism into socialism, essentially because in this world, there's nowhere else for capital to go. There's nowhere for capital to flee to resist these state machines of Western uh, democracy and of the Soviet Union. There's there's no place for capital to uh, decisively influence things if those machines are both controlled by these working class movements. Now, you could argue that by this point, the Soviet Union is now led by sort of a, a deformed uh, bureaucratic state that is is created this new uh, new class that is not capitalist, but is uh, also not a working class. And that's true, but there are still no capitalists. Like, the money is being reinvested. There is no capital being accrued in the Soviet Union. And that also raises a critical question of what if Wallace is in there? What is the Soviet Union allowed to do? Does the Soviet Union, does it not have to pursue an arms race? Is it able to pursue an actual working class communism after Stalin dies in 53? Is Khrushchev able to do a lot of different things? So the the critical thing to understand is just the sheer power of the United States on a global scale after 1945 makes these parochial domestic political choices, political processes of world historical importance in a way that they wouldn't be otherwise. And that big question, if the Soviet Union isn't forced to fight this war with the United States, I mean, personally, I think the Soviet Union, after Stalin died in 53, there was a two to three year period where one could have made a genuine peace with them. If the Soviet Union doesn't have to fight the United States, what becomes of that project? You know, uh, Beria basically wanted to buy out the Soviet Union in exchange for a Marshall Plan. Uh, but the thing is, is that even if he had pursued that and not been cooed by Khrushchev, uh, the U.S. would never have taken yes for an answer. Uh, the, Soviet, the Soviets sought Marshall Plan aid. They sought entrance to NATO. People might not know that. But the Soviet Union uh, expressed interest in joining NATO, which, of course, obviated the whole point of NATO. So they ended up creating the Warsaw Pact. But I think that... The, the control the party had at that point over the Soviet Union, I think, was, was significant enough that they could have initiated a, a rapprochement with the West that would have had no internal resistance for the simple fact that it would have meant a rising standard of living. Like what this would have been would have been the redistribution 
of capital-like intensification uh, outward instead of the concentration of it all, like surplus basically being distributed through the system as opposed to uh, hoarded in the United States. Now, what that would have meant is is that the U.S. capital, standing in for world capital at this point, would have resisted. And I think if I try to imagine what a Wallace presidency means, I don't think it means that you get you know eventually this peaceful transition. I think what you get is a deep, violent struggle for power in the United States that intensifies over the 50s and 60s. And then when the early 70s hit and the ability for capitalism to persist in a democratic milieu becomes attenuated because as the cost of energy basically is priced into capitalism, the ability to to, uh, hoard surplus goes away. And that means that the place for capital goes away. Its inefficiencies must be seized by the people uh, and that will be resisted. And I think that you would still have a defining moment in the 70s the way we did throughout the Western world, but it would have gone the other direction. And then this also raises the crucial question. If let's say you don't have all those nuclear anxieties, which a lot of psychic energy goes to in the 1950s, which is basically a product of the arms race between the United States and the Soviet Union. Everyone and their mother is, you know, ducking on their desks. They're freaking out. People are talking about building like gigantic underground cities so that 100,000 of the best Americans could survive this nuclear conflagration. And just a lot of psychic energy is, I think, channeled toward the essential, you know, vortex of useless vortex of nuclear anxieties. So what if those anxieties aren't channeled there, but they're able to be, you know, put in class conflict, they're able to be put in the class conflict that had been really gestating since the 20s and, you know, went into overdrive with the 1930s. That's absolutely the deal is that in the 50s, you have this, this steady hum of anxiety that the world is going to end at any moment. And that can only be sublimated into consumption. That's the only place it can go. But like the idea of nuclear annihilation, that is just the cultural symbolic language of a deeper anxiety about where your society is headed. An awareness that this thing cannot last forever. An awareness that you're, you are killing the earth. Like We know that. We can only accept it and, and, and process it through acceptable cultural symbols and language and the symbols and language we got through the 50s and 60s was nuclear annihilation thanks to the goddamn communists and if you have that same anxiety powering you through the 50s and 60s but it is wedded to an understanding of capital-led ecological collapse through exploitation then that means that all that energy instead of going into buying a new hi-fi and cheating on your wife and eating five tons of red meat a night goes into going to your union hall and standing a picket line and maybe picking up a goddamn gun and that sh- that i think is something that would like significantly shift the the flow of the river of history and make the 70s moment a moment of true existential uh reckoning where working class people self-aware of their class and its historical destiny seize control of the means of production instead of credit exploding and houses becoming the vehicle of investment for the american middle class uh well thank you everyone for listening uh to this week's hinge point um we'll be back next week and uh look forward to speaking with you then
Yeah.